Psalm 119, verses 89 to 112. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate, it on, I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth, and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you are not silent, Father, but you have spoken um, by your spirit. Um, you um, have inspired uh, men by that spirit um, to record your very words, and you've given them to us, um, that we might know, uh, most of all, um, the person of your son, and that we might see your face reflected in his. Um, Father, this morning um, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would bless um, in an hour our worship as we gather together as your people. Uh, we pray that you would grant us even your spirit this morning as we prepare for worship by discussing um, your word together um, this morning. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad um, to be with you today for Sunday School. Um, I wanted to start today, before we jump back into the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, just to see if there are any um, questions or things to discuss from the past couple weeks as we've begun this series on Genesis 4. Um, I know that um, there's a lot to talk about in these early chapters of Genesis, and just wanted to see if there's any, anything to discuss, any questions or comments or things from recent sermons the last two Sundays as we've begun to talk about Genesis 4. Anything at all? Very good. Well, let's go on and, and jump into the uh, Westminster Confession. 
Um, so we are um, working through a series right now, looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, our church's um, constitutional document, um, the standard of doctrine that um, ministers and elders um, are required to subscribe to and codifies um, uh, the, what we believe as a church that the scripture teaches. Um, that first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith is um, on the topic of the scriptures, and it in some ways is the most lengthy chapter um, and most in-depth. Um, it provides a foundation for all that comes after because the basic argument of uh, the Westminster Standards is that, that these men who gathered for about a decade are seeking to um, summarize the scripture's teaching, um, what the scripture teaches about God, about his word, about uh, humanity, about the plan of salvation, about the church, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they spent a long time talking about um, the scriptures. Um, uh, we've looked at a number of different things um, regarding the scriptures, um, that they're inspired by God, their authority, um, the, the way in which we are to, to, to value them and treat them. Um, last or two weeks ago, we discussed um, uh, chapter or section eight in chapter one, um, which discusses the, the need for the scriptures to be translated into the vernacular um, of the, whatever language is common to the people. And that this too is also the word of God, um, that we can receive the word of God in a real way, um, even in translation. And so we come now to the last um, two sections of that first chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, first, um, section nine, um, we'll look at today. Um, this is going to be the, the last two parts of this uh, first chapter. And so this, you can see this at the top of your handout here. Um, this section reads in this way, this paragraph reads in this way. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This is a really important uh, principle um, for um, the understanding interpretation of scripture that's summarized here um, by the divines. Um, what they're saying is, and this is part and parcel of what we mean um, as Protestants when we talk about the, the theme of sola scriptura, um, the idea that scripture alone is our authority. And that um, includes even the way in which we interpret scripture. Um, we believe that um, certainly um, the, the tradition of the church is important. It's, it's right um, to uh, be aware of what um, previous um, uh, portions of the church have taught regarding the scriptures, to be cognizant of those things, to acknowledge that none of us uh, come to the scriptures um, uh, without uh, being building on the, the work of others, um, certainly. But there's only one infallible uh, rule of interpretation of Scripture. And that rule is Scripture itself. Um, the, the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And, and what they mean by that is that uh, when you come to one portion of the Scripture and you read a, a text, you know, you're reading in uh, you know, Romans 3 or um, John 7 or whatever it might be, and you're trying to piece together um, what um, the Spirit means um, in this passage. What does it mean by this verse? And, and what they're saying is the way that you determine that is that um, 
not so much that you rely on the authoritative teaching of the church over the centuries, but uh, rather that you go to other portions of the scriptures and you see uh, where other texts relate to this text and you, and you begin to comprehend um, what this text means in the light of other parts um, of, of God's word. So when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, and that's what we should be aiming for whenever we're uh, going to God's word, um, particularly if we're hearing a sermon, hopefully the pastor's trying to bring forth um, a true and full sense of the scripture. Um, we know this, we discern this by searching out and knowing other places um, that speak uh, more clearly. And this is particularly an important principle uh, when it comes to what we might say are, are difficult sections of the scriptures, um, things that are confusing, things that are hard. Um, uh, we believe that God doesn't leave us to just guess at what the meaning of those texts might be, um, but rather by evaluating them and other parts of the scriptures that speak more clearly, uh, we can come to understand their meaning. Uh, Robert Lethem um, says this, and I think this is a, a great thing to think about, that quote that's a little further down on the page. He says, if some other principle other than scripture were the key to its interpretation, then scripture would not be the ultimate authority. And this is, again, why this principle is so important for sola scriptura. Um, if some other principle other than scripture were the key to its interpretation, then scripture would not be the ultimate authority. Uh, rather, that principle would be, that lens would be. Um, but we're saying the lens by which we study scripture is scripture. Its divine origin also means that scripture, for all its diversity, is a unity. There is a common theme holding the various parts together, which in turn both justifies and requires it being interpreted as a whole. Um, so what, what he's saying there in that second sentence is that the reason this works, the reason we can do this is because scripture is not um, a, a series of disjointed writings um, written by uh, men who, who you know, just wrote independently of each other. Um, no, we believe that though the Spirit uses um, human beings, he uses um, men to write the words of God, um, there is a divine author who is common to all portions of the Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is just, as you think about the history of interpretation of the Scriptures, I think this is something that in um, the modern um, sort of um, uh, movement of interpreting the scriptures, sometimes this reality has been lost. Uh, we've rightly, in the sort of modern age, you know, beginning in the late 19th century, continuing to today, have wanted to emphasize the, the original context and the, the intentions of the, the original author. You know, who, who is it that wrote uh, Romans? You know, we believe it's Paul, but what, what was Paul writing? Well, he was writing to the Romans, and what was the situation of the church in Rome that he was seeking to address, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these kinds of questions have become very important. And we can do that for you know, all the books of the Bible. Um, that has certainly been the trend in the last 150 years or so as we think about biblical interpretation is to, is to substantially emphasize what was the original intentions of the human author who wrote uh, these words. Um, what, did they, what, did, what was their context? Um, who were they writing to? What were they trying to accomplish? And don't get me wrong, those are important questions to ask, and I think that, that we should ask them, as we should ask them with any literary document that we encounter, right? We ask the same questions about um, you know, any historical document that we come across. And yet, I think at times, the modern sort of movement, um, biblical interpretation, um, and I'm, I'm not 
you know, I'm just speaking about the quote-unquote liberals here. I'm talking about, um, you know, evangelicals and people who are um, orthodox and conservative in their interpretation of the scriptures. I do wonder if, if at times we have overemphasized um, those things and we have said, you know, um, uh, we, ha we, have not, we, have, we, have, we have disconnected the scripture from itself at times, I think, and by overemphasizing that reality. And we've forgotten at times um, that there is, yes, although Paul had particular concerns when he was writing um, to the church in Rome and he was trying to address those things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Paul also, I believe, self-consciously understood that he was adding to um, a, a text that already existed. He was building on, um, he, he understood himself to be writing scripture. Does that make sense? Um, he didn't just see himself as you know, writing a pastoral letter of encouragement to the Roman church. Um, he understood that what he was writing was going to be for the church universal throughout the ages, that it was in conversation um, with the Hebrew scriptures and certainly with the gospels that existed at that time um, and other um, parts of the New Testament that were being written by the apostles. And even more than that, even aside from Paul's own conscious intentions when he was writing um, the, the book of Romans, um, the same author was at work in that the crafting of that letter that was at work in the crafting of the book of Genesis or the book of Isaiah or the book of Psalms or et cetera, et cetera, um, that the spirit um, was, was the same spirit, was working in the same way um, in all of these different parts of the scripture. And so we should expect the scriptures to be interconnected and related to one another and to be building on the same themes, the same story, um, because we believe that it is not only men writing, you know, thousands of years apart from each other and sometimes in different languages, Hebrew and Greek. Um, it is the spirit um, who is writing all of these things ultimately. And so scripture is, is there is a unity of meaning. There's a unity of argument um, that is supernatural. That's because it's written by God, um, not by man in, in an ultimate sense. And so, it, and interestingly, if you read the church fathers, the early uh, years of, of interpretation of the scriptures, they're much more comfortable with this reality, right? They're much less concerned about uh, figuring out, you know, what exactly was the context in the church in Rome around the year 60 that Paul must have been writing to that must have, you know, provoked why he did things this way and why this argument comes here. They're, they're much more open to the idea, well, yeah, well, Paul's, Paul's writing scripture, and so we should, the best way to interpret Romans is to look to Isaiah or to Psalms or to Genesis and read it through those lenses. Does that make sense, that movement, that shift? Yeah, Jeremy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that was a craze. I don't know what was it twenty years ago, maybe, in the evangelical world, the prayer of Jabez. And yeah, absolutely, that's a great example of a, a verse or, or passage that's being taken out of context and 
not being read in, in the context of the whole story in a way that I think is, you know, not helpful for people ultimately. Absolutely. You have thoughts about what I'm talking about here, James? Like First Corinthians seven yeah, is where he, he does some of that. Yeah. Do you think that Paul was conscious of the fact that he's writing scripture? And I can see those passages as in some sense being evidence for that, but I also um, am curious about how you interpret what <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. saying there. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, so so James is referring to the passages um, uh, like First Corinthians seven is I think the most um, famous example of this where Paul is writing about marriage and singleness and calling in the world and and he there are some places where he says um, now you know it's not the spirit saying this but it's just simply me essentially um, um, you know I, I'm I'm stepping and I, I mean I think on, on one to one extent I would say on one the one hand James I would say that those passages are the exceptions that prove the rule does that make sense like Paul is is self-consciously, um, he's alluding to the fact that he understands that the Spirit is at work in his writing. Um, and he's stepping back and saying here, um, they're, they're, you know, just for a verse here, basically, I'm just going to give you my perspective on this thing. Um, and and I, I mean, that's how I read them. That's how I read those passages, that, that there's, this is a, a, not that it's not still Scripture, but it's Paul is differentiating in some way um, his own sort of personal counsel or advice from uh, what he understands the Spirit be doing generally through his work. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's a confusing portion of the scriptures. And, and here is where this principle that we just looked at is actually helpful, right? You know, how do we interpret what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 when he writes about celibacy or singleness or marriage? And we go to other parts of the scripture um, to interpret and discern um, what is intended by those words. Does that make sense? Um, and so we, it would be wrong for us just to simply isolate um, that passage, but we, we have to read it in concert with other things. So the read in concert of Genesis 1 and 2, we have to read in concert with uh, the life of Jesus, all, all sorts of things. So I, I don't know how to answer the question better. I don't, Lauren, do you have anything to add there in terms of how you take those passages in 1 Corinthians 7? Right. I think he says, um, I, not the Lord. And I, I've always taken that as referring to, you know, Christ didn't speak this exact command. Or Christ didn't give this command. I'm giving the command, but it's not that I'm quoting Christ. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's probably a better interpretation than what I just said. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, th so that would be something to think about, James, there, that that perhaps he's differentiating what he's saying here from the direct teaching of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I've, I've found it using the tests. Yeah. yeah. 7, 10, 11, that's true. Excellent. That's great. Yeah, Jeremy. Divinely inspired way of 
as a reference to like a specific issue in a local situation. And yet, and then the person went on to talk about other examples on how they, how Paul might talk about the Old Testament in a way that the Jews intended it. You know, it's a way that he actually applies it to something in the Old Testament. It isn't just something for us to go like, oh, great, that's a doctrinal point. But the way in which he did it yeah. is something that we, is something that inspires and that we emulate. And I thought right. that was yeah, and, that's, and I do think the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament is something that we in the modern church ought to take more seriously than we do because what we see in the, old, in the terms of the way the apostles interpret the Old Testament is that they, they treat the Old Testament like I'm describing, right? Uh, Matthew, um, you know, um, in, in chapter 3 where Jesus um, is led um, by his parents into Egypt, um, because of the dream that Joseph receives and then comes back after Herod dies because of another dream. Um, Matthew says, um, and this was to fulfill um, what the prophet said, um, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, if you go back to Hosea 10, you realize this is about Israel coming out of the Exodus, the Lord reflecting on, you know, what he's done. Um, you know, it, there's no, it does not seem to be any way in which you could say, well, Hosea meant this to apply to the Messiah one day. Uh, rather, what we see is Matthew going back and trusting that uh, even if Hosea didn't have this in mind when he wrote it, um, that the Spirit is actually the ultimate author of these documents. And so I can freely say that this was to fulfill what the prophet said, even though the prophet didn't realize exactly what he was saying in a, in a full sense um, when he wrote it in Hosea in the first place. And we can apply it appropriately to um, Jesus and there's a whole sorts of biblical theology that goes into that but that's just one example but but the the New Testament apostles are constantly quoting scripture in that way uh, we would you know in a in a first year seminary class if someone tried to write a paper and quote the Old Testament that way we'd be you know the professor would be like oh it's out of context you can't do that um, but the apostles did it so maybe we should we should think about that more carefully um, the way that they um, the way that they felt free to use the Old Testament scriptures and to ignore many of the quote-unquote rules that we have for how it should be interpreted. Um, and again, I think, I think this has to do with modernity and with the project of, of trying to get you know, behind the sort of original motivations of the writers and saying that these are the things that are most important when it comes to interpretation. And I, I mean, again, I'm not saying we should just ignore that, but I am saying we need to be careful. Um, we need to be careful and realize that the scriptures are more complicated than that, and that there is both in the New Testament apostles as well as you know a huge tradition of the church's interpretation have not played by those rules, so to speak, in the ways that we default towards. Is there another hand somewhere? Somebody, James? Yeah, 
And certainly Paul saw himself that way, that he was, he was not one of the original 12. He was building on their work um, as a kind of second generation almost, so to speak. Yeah, um, through his being called with Jesus, by Jesus, certainly directly he understands himself to be an apostle in the same way that those other men were, but he's very cognizant of his, the difference um, in terms of his role, um, both in relationship to Jesus and history and space and time, and also um, his calling to go out and to, yeah, and, to, and to, to push the gospel into new places, to take what was given and, and build on it. Absolutely. Um, so let me just read this um, section I have in italics here. These are my comments. Um, this, meaning this principle in section 9, is one of the reasons we have multiple readings of the scripture in our worship each Sunday and almost why almost every sermon preached at our church references not only the primary sermon text, but also other parts of the scripture, which aid in the interpretation of the primary text. Um, so I, I want y'all to see that, like that practice that we have, you know, we have um, every Sunday three um, fairly extended readings um, from usually from um, the Old Testament, um, the New Testament, and then a gospel. Um, sometimes, like today, it's two readings from the Old Testament and then a gospel reading. Um, one of the reasons we do that um, is because whoever is preaching that week um, takes some time, a fair bit of time, typically, to think about their sermon text and really think about um, what, what, is, what is happening here and where do other parts of the scripture speak to this thing as well. Um, and, and often that will be drawn out explicitly in the sermon. Um, I'm going to do some explicit references today um, to, to some of those other readings. Um, you know, for example, in our, our sermon text this morning is, um, has to do with um, Abel um, offering a sacrifice to the Lord, um, killing um, an animal um, as he brings his offering, his tithe to the Lord. And so we're going to read first from um, Genesis uh, 3, um, where we see the Lord um, establishing this principle, where he um, clothes Adam and Eve in garments of animal skin um, after their sin, which means that he kills an animal, he spills blood um, in order to do that. And we're going to read then from Leviticus 1, uh, where we see the Lord instructing, right, the Lord directly instructing uh, the people that this is how you worship. The first thing that you do, the first thing that happens in Leviticus is this description of how a worshiper has to bring an animal uh, before the Lord, and he has to put his hands on that animal. Um, he has to impute himself, right? He has to put his sins on the animal, so to speak, uh, become one with the animal. And then this is a really fascinating thing that happens in Leviticus 1. It's not the priest that kills the animal, it's the worshiper. So the worshiper, after he puts his, his hands on the animal, he has to take the knife and, and slay the animal. And then the, the priest comes along and puts the blood on the altar and does all the other things. But but do you see what's happening there? Like the animal is becoming the man and he's killing the animal in his place, right? All, this substitutionary atonement, right, is not something that Paul thought up. Um, it, it, it's all there, right? It's there in Genesis 3, it's there in Genesis 4, it's there in Leviticus 1, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then um, I'm going to also read from um, John uh, chapter 1, where John the Baptist is um, at the banks of the Jordan. He sees Jesus coming, and what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Um, John understands as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, so to speak, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things, that he will become the lamb upon whom sin is imputed 
and will die um, the death that we should die um, and, and, and sacrifice for us in that way. So does that make sense? Like, so we're going we're gonna to talk about Genesis 4. We're going to talk about it in concert with all these other parts of the scripture. And we think that's how we do that on purpose because we think that's how scripture should be interpreted. That is directly related to this section of the confession and this principle of um, how we believe the scriptures work together. Um, any questions about that? Any thoughts? Does that make sense? Um, and and th this is something, you know, that we're trying to model for as a congregation. I'm trying to model a way of when I preach um, of interpreting the scripture for you um, so that you can, can take on these practices yourselves so that when you uh, read um, different parts of the scripture, you can be asking the question, thinking about uh, where else um, is this spoken of? How does this relate to the bigger story? All of those things. Now, I, I note this principle does not mean that scripture texts do not have multiple levels of meaning. Um, so we're not saying that there's no such thing as typological meaning, you know, where, where it says uh, the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one. Um, we're, not, we're not saying that there, there aren't deeper levels of meaning within one text. Um, so we could say that, you know, Genesis 22, um, yes, it's about God testing Abraham um, and telling him to offer his only son um, as a sacrifice. But clearly that text also has a deeper meaning which relates to our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It relates to um, God giving his son uh, fully and completely in a way that even Abraham didn't. Um, but all these meanings will work together. There'll be a kind of unity of meaning, right? Um, those multiple levels of meaning, what we might say the sort of literal initial meaning in the text um, will not conflict with the typological meaning, the deeper meaning um, that exists. And another you know, way to think about this is uh, the story of the cord that Rahab puts down um, and, and Joshua um, when the Israelites come and, and surround the city of Jericho. Uh, she puts out a red cord to mark her house so that she'll be spared. Now we might say, well, that red cord, you know, it's there because it just, you know, helps it stand out from the, from the wall and it makes it obvious and evident. And oh, that's true. That's, that's certainly one of the, that's a meaning um, of the text. But we also say, we also go to ask questions like, well, why is it a red cord, right? Why not a black cord? Why not uh, some other color? Why, 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 is the script, why does Joshua tell us at all what the color is in the first place? Why not just say a cord? We can, and then we can think about, oh, well, let's think about Passover. What did the Lord do um, when he, you know, wanted um, uh, Israel to show that they were submitting to him, they were trusting in him, um, so that, that the angel would pass, of death would pass, oh, he had them put blood on their, their doorposts, right, um, and the lentils. And, oh, well, maybe there's, I, I mean, obviously, I think there is a connection there between this red cord. But does that make sense? Like, these, these are multiple meanings, but they're not meanings in conflict with one another. There's one meaning. You have a thought, question? Yeah. Jump in, yeah. Um, I do think it's David. interesting when we talk about interpretations, like early church fathers that we would look up to may interpret that verse in different Maybe Chrysostom would interpret it different. Sure. Augustine and Augustine, many other Antiochian school would interpret it wildly different, maybe even that. And as we've gone through time, our interpretation of the chord and how that relates to the children of Israel has changed. Sure. And I think it's neat that the deeper meanings that we could grasp or illuminate from mm -hmm. Scripture. Absolutely. And I just I really like that, that what it meant for maybe those guys in some similar would not be the same thing for us. 
And I, yeah, and I think that's that's right. And I think that's the way in which we should understand ourselves in terms of relationship to tradition, that we're building on something, but we're building on it. We're not just saying this is, yeah, we're not destroying it, but we're also not just saying this has already been figured out and I'm just gonna believe whatever Augustine said or something. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're building on a tradition we're, we're, and we're trusting that as the spirit continues to work in the church, our understanding of the scriptures are gonna continue to deepen, right? Um, and that, that there will be, and this is what I think is so fascinating about the Word of God, right? That there's no, there's no end to our study of it. The way that we can uh, delve in it is, you know, we're, we're doing work that, um, you know, a thousand years from now, um, there's going to be even deeper insights because the, hopefully, the Lord willing, the, Lord, the church is going to continue to build on the history of interpretation uh, throughout the centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, another way to think of this, um, I, I say, is that any scripture has only one true and full sense or meaning, but a thousand applications, right? And that's a lot of what the work of interpretation is doing, is working out all the, the many different applications that the different parts of the scripture have. Um, Chad Ben Dixhorn says, if we wish to search out scripture truly and in its fullest sense, we need to read the whole of the Bible and know it well, right? We should not be um, people who only know um, you know, our, our certain favorite parts of the scripture, whatever that might be, um, whether that's the Pauline epistles or the Psalms or, um, you know, the life of David or whatever, or the gospels, um, we should, we should want to be, uh, learned in all different parts of the Bible, all different parts of the scriptures, even those parts that seem to be, um, dull or, uh, not as interesting or, or more difficult, um, the, the reality is that our knowledge of the scriptures, of any one scriptural text, is dependent upon our knowledge of the whole. Does that make sense? Um, it, and this is why it takes a lifetime to learn the scriptures. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, I've been doing this more or less full time for, you know, 15 years just about, and I feel like I'm, I'm just scratching the surface, you know, um, of how it all works together in the nooks and crannies of God's word. Um, and we should, we should think about our lives that way, that you know, if I, especially if we grow in the church and we, we've spent decades in the church, we, we want, one of the things that's happening in our life with God over the decades is that we are learning all of the scriptures and we're learning all of them well, right? We're not, we're not just isolating. Um, our, our knowledge is deepening. Uh, that's something I really desire for our church. It's one of the reasons that we emphasize the scripture so much in terms of our preaching, in terms of reading so much of it in our service each Sunday, um, in terms of um, the, the kinds of groups that we have that meet during the week that are Bible studies instead of some other kind of study. Um, you know, we, we study the Bible. Um, the men are going through First Samuel right now. The, Luke are going through Luke, the women are going through Luke. Um, and we really want to, we, we publish these daily Bible readings. I know that many of you do them. And those Bible readings are taking you through not every word of the scriptures every year, but they're hitting, it's all the New Testament in its entirety. And it's the, 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 you know, a huge portions of the Old Testament and, and you know, the, the significant parts. So just reading, reading that again and again gives us more knowledge. Um, it deepens our understanding uh, year by year. Um, Eric, did you have a question or comment?
In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you mean? Right. Absolutely. No, that's, I totally agree with that. Yeah, there's, I was a little hyperbolic earlier when I was talking about Hosea having no idea. You're right. I, I think there is a, rea- there's a, the Old Testament, reading those texts in context um, gives us a richer understanding of what, what's going on. And uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and this is, I mean, a great project would be um, to work these things out, you know, Many of our Bibles have these reference systems where, uh, which I love, and they're not inspired, but you know, it's helpful. Scholars have done this work um, uh, where you can, you know, the little column sometimes in the middle, right, um, between, right, there's all these, you know, little notes, this just listing Bible verses. Um, Essentially, the scholars have gone and have said, okay, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew or whatever, you know, chapter one, here are all the references to the Old Testament or other parts of the, I mean, a, a great way to study the Bible is just to, like, actually look those up, you know, um, and just walk through it and just ask yourself the question, well, why, why, why did the scholar think that this is related? You know, just kind of think about the connections and the meanings um, between uh, those things, and that's, I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's inexhaustible thinking about not just reading the scriptures from beginning to end, but beginning to read them in concert um, with one another all the different parts. All right, let me, um, yeah, Daniel. Well, I would say we, we don't do it in the same way the apostles in that we don't, you know, uh, we don't provide um, infallible interpretation of the Old Testament, obviously, right? Um, but I think it'd be crazy for us to not try to emulate the apostles in how they read the Old Testament. I, I think that would be foolish. I think the apostles are demonstrating for the church a way of reading the Old Testament scriptures. I would even argue that's one of the primary things they're doing in the New Testament is that they're, they're seeking to teach the church self-consciously, okay, now that um, the Lord Jesus Christ has come, now that the Son of God has come into flesh, now that he's died and, and risen again and ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit, how do we now read the Old Testament rightly? Um, and, and of course, part of the reason we think that they have to change or they have, they have to read the New Testament in a new way is because Jesus teaches that, right? He um, twice in uh, the Gospel of Luke, um, in, in chapter 24, he meets with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and interprets the scriptures for them. 
because they had missed it, right? They knew the Old Testament, but they did not understand that the Messiah had, it was necessary, Jesus tells them, for the Messiah to suffer and die and then rise again. Um, and so, and then at the end of Luke 24, it tells us that after he appeared to the 12, um, he uh, went through the law and the prophets and the Psalms and he showed them how they all spoke of him. And so, so I, I guess my response to that, Daniel, is yes, we should differentiate between how, you know, the, the apostles did it by the inspiration of the Spirit um, in an infallible way. Um, but they are providing a model and a guide for us to think about the Old Testament differently because of what God has done in Jesus. And that would be my argument, I guess. Did you have a comment, Scott? Yeah, I, I agree completely. Right, the whole, that's true. The whole reason they're doing that is to try to establish um, the credibility of what, yeah, that's true, yeah. Go ahead, Jeremy, yeah. That's right, and then again, this is this is why the re the way which we interact with the scriptures on Sunday morning is so important because, like, we're trying constantly to do that every Lord's Day, right? Whether we're the sermon text in the New Testament and we're thinking about all the things in the Old Testament, or like today where this text is in the Old Testament, we're thinking about how this unfolds throughout the rest of the scriptures. Like, we're doing this together. I want you to see that, right? We're we're trying to to read this, the scriptures as a whole um, every Lord's Day. And I think we ought to do that. Yeah, Donna. Just back to what both Daniel and Scott were saying in reference to how we as lay people and as modern Christians see these texts. There is not a Thursday morning in women's Bible study that goes by that one of us is not saying, well, this sounds like this echoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This echoes this from the Old Testament. Right. This echoes, you know, and so we're hearing echoes of the, of the scripture itself throughout the entire text. Right. And there's not, I mean, we can agree, I think, that there's just like not a Thursday that goes by that one of us isn't seeing. Right. And that's, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. So that, um, so that you and the other women that come to that study can begin to make those own those connections for yourselves. You're, I mean, it shows the growth that's happening, I think, in people's understanding of the scriptures and they're increasingly um, asking the right kinds of questions and, and thinking about that story and how it relates to one another. And that's what's so exciting about learning the Bible is that all, it all builds on itself, right? I mean, you're not gonna waste time you know, spending a year studying Ecclesiastes or something, right? Um, because it's, it's all the whole cloth um, and it's all gonna be building towards a deeper understand, you know, by studying Ecclesiastes, you're gonna, you're gonna understand Isaiah better or you're gonna understand, um, you know, the Gospel of Luke. I mean, it, it just, it all works together. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. Um, and that's why, you know, we spent, I know, I know, I take a while 
to preach through books, right? Y'all know this about me. Um, um, you know, we spent like two years in Hebrews. Um, but the, the doing it that way, like I know there are pros and cons and you could do bigger chunks. You could knock out Hebrews in, you know, 13 weeks or whatever um, if you really wanted to. But what we're doing every Sunday is we're doing deep dives, not only into that text, but into all the other portions. Do you know what I mean? Like we're trying to, we're trying to, so we're, we're preaching Hebrews, but we're really not just preaching Hebrews. Do you know what I mean? Like we're preaching the Gospels, we're preaching the Old Testament, we're preaching the Psalms. It's all, it's all woven together. And that, that's, that's part of how I feel better about myself when I take two years to write through Hebrew. Uh, when, considering what Daniel said, I also thought about the apostles have authority. Yes. Uh, we kind of don't have that. Not in the same way, no. Yeah, there's authority there. But I do think the apostles, again, are modeling something for us. I do think the apostles are, are trying to show um, how, to, how to interpret the scriptures. And, and you're right. They do it in a way that's authoritative. And certainly you never, no pastor today should be saying, you know, this is the definitive interpretation of, you know, this Old Testament text um, because the Spirit has revealed it to me. Um, that would be bad. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think that, that Peter is showing us um, a way, he's modeling a way for us to read the Bible. Um, and he did learn it from Jesus, um, which is important. Anything else? Any other comments? Lauren? Oh, sure. In, in your interpretations, especially when they were looking at numbers. Yeah, yeah. And so there are ways to do this well. Yeah. And, and again, I would re- go back to what you say about taking the apostles and the writers of Scripture as examples mm-hmm. and not try to do these, um, you know, taking numbers here to meet numbers there and, you know, crazy things that some of the, some that you read. Oh, sure. Even a great patriarch. Oh, yeah. And you can, where in the world did they come up with this? Yeah. So I think you need to be careful. Um, but I think your point is well taken. And I honestly think our church, uh, one of the greatest things about our liturgy is exactly what you're doing in having text that relates to your sermon. Mm-hmm. And not only did you read through those and people could kind of figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually trying to execute, so 
I appreciate it, Lauren. Yeah, it is. It's a, and I agree with what you're saying about the the early church. There certainly are, you know, they're um, they're at the beginning, you know, and so um, certainly we're building on their knowledge, right? We're building on their example, and and there are, like I have these, you know, as I've been preaching through the Psalms, there are now these like recent translation of all of Augustine's sermons on the Psalms, which he preached on all 150 of them, and um, they're fascinating. Um, and half the time I'm like, I no, you know, I I can't, I can't go there. But then I'm I'm always I've got this thing in the back of my head. I'm just like, yeah, but you know, like maybe he see you know what I mean? Like I I want to be open, you know, like I want to like maybe he just has this he has this totally different perspective. And I, and I think that's how we want to engage with the the tradition of the church, right? They're they're not infallible. Uh, but they did live in a different time and space, and that's helpful for us, right? Because they're asking questions of the text that are totally different sometimes than what we're asking or thinking about, and that's a really helpful thing. And I appreciate the encouragement about the scripture, and yeah, and that's you know you, you can see it all throughout our our liturgy, and the scriptures are are all over the place, and that's not just because we think you know getting the Bible in people is a good thing, but because um, we do think that, but it's also because we think it all works together, and they all they all illuminate different you know, one another um, in different ways. Uh, you know, from the very first part of the psalm that begins our call to worship to uh, the ironic blessing in number six and everything in between. Um, they're, they're all working together. I think there was another hand, and then we'll wrap up. Does somebody else have a comment? Kathina? Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. This is we're doing apologetics when we do that um, because we're learning how to pick up the Bible and answer these questions for our own hearts. I know that we have those questions too, right? Um, <laughs> about what about what about the Canaanites and you know. Uh, what about uh, the imprecatory psalms and and but yeah, it's also equipping us to to think about um, how to address those things as people ask those questions too, which they will, which they will, and they should. It's those questions are not bad questions. We we should want to talk about those things. All right, let's um let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for how it works together. We're thankful for how it builds on itself. We're thankful that you um, reveal yourself um, in every part of it. And we pray, I pray, Lord, for our church as individuals, as a corporate body, that we would um, continue to grow deeper um, in being uh, knowledgeable about your word, Father. We want to know it. Uh, we want to have the kind of attitude about your word that we see uh, described um, in the Psalter, particularly Psalm 119 or Psalm 19 or Psalm 1, um, the way that, um, that we um, see the psalmist talking about the value of just meditating on your word and being having our days filled with it, thinking about all of these things, Father. Help us to, um, to see that time um, thinking deeply about your word is never wasted, um, but it leads us into deeper knowledge and wisdom and to hope and faith and love and because it reveals um, us uh, to you to us, Father. It shows us you um, as you've given yourself and your son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.